Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in sultry Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure Season 4 in American Tragedy. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, international man of misery. Sweating a little bit here. I know I always begin these things with the weather, but, you know, that's top of mind for me when you're sweaty and a little bit dizzy. I was dizzy the other day. I had to lay down for several hours. Just, you know, kind of, you run of the mill vertigo, which I don't get very often, but I do get sometimes. I don't know if it was the heat or dehydration or what it was, but if dehydration was the cause, I've got myself a piping hot cup of English breakfast tea right now, a splash of milk, and of course, two crumbly digestives. You can hear me sliding the saucer over so I can get better access to them when the tea cools off just a little bit. And you'll be glad to know I just plucked a hair out of my tea. Although I think it was, uh, if I'm being perfectly honest, I think it was a synthetic fiber that came from the inside of a dog bed. It doesn't matter. That's not interesting. Really nothing interesting going on for me. The past week been a very quiet week in sultry Savannah. I haven't minded it too much. It's nice to be quiet at home, nice to do little or nothing. Haven't been writing, haven't been really doing much. Been taking some walks through Savannah solo with my kid and with the doggies. Um, You know, just sort of seeing what's up. Not much has changed in Savannah in the previous five months since I was here last. Um, Not much changes in Savannah by the month or even by the decade. And I think for a lot of people, that is part of the appeal. It is a historic city in many ways. And, uh, you know, but it's a history that feels very much alive. Sans 
the racist parts, or if they do feel alive, those parts feel alive, I'm not that aware of them. For which, uh, you know, on one hand, I'm grateful. On the other hand, I'm like, oh, I'm just a Pollyanna. Everything's fine. No, I don't know. The truth is, I don't know. It's an interesting thing, being a white person in the South. You just don't know. Because on the surface, everything seems hunky-dory. But then you think, well, I know the history here, and it can't be that hunky-dory. And then somebody gets killed while jogging. So you think, well, so you just don't know. You just don't know. Pleasant, though. It is pleasant. But again, you just don't know. I don't know. My tea is steeping. Sweat is on my brow. And we are about to begin a new chapter in an American tragedy. Um, you know, Clyde has been sowing his oats, or starting to sow his oats a little bit. The last sense of the last paragraph was he began to sense the delight of personal freedom to sniff the air of personal and delicious romance, and he was not to be held back by any suggestion which his mother could now make. Well, hell no. Hell no. I remember that time in my life, I was a senior in high school, and man, nothing my mother was going to tell me was going to get me to do this or that or not do this or that. I stormed out of that house on more than one occasion, went my own way, ran away from home for, you know, two, three hours at a time, whatever it may be. I was a punk rocker wasn't going to listen to the man or the woman in this, this case. Um, certainly not once I had a taste of personal romance. My goodness. That's all a young boy wants is personal romance. So let's see if he gets it. Here, Chapter 9 in American Tragedy. And so the interesting dinner with Clyde, what, what interesting dinner? I, I've already forgotten about that. Oh, as to this supper, this was a different matter even to him. He gets, oh yeah, with all the bellhops, they get to go, they're going out to dinner. And so the interesting dinner with Clyde attending came to pass. And it was partaken of at Frizzell's, as Ratterer had said, and by now Clyde having come to be on genial terms with all of these youths, was in the gayest of moods about it all. Think of his new state in life, anyhow. Only a few weeks ago, he was all alone, not a boyfriend, scarcely a boy acquaintance in the whole world. And here he was, so soon after, going to this fine dinner with this interesting group. And they are interesting, you know, a bunch of bellhops, squirrely, keen-eyed, Anxious bellhops, you know, looking to make two bits here, two bits there. Tasting the finer things in life for the first time. Yeah, they're interesting. It's a good coming-of-age story right now. The Hop Bench. Metro Golden Mayer's The Hop Bench. Starring James Cagney as, uh, as uh, Huggereth or whatever. Huggerland, whatever his name is. Huggerland, Huggerland. And true to the illusions of youth, the place appeared far more interesting than it really was. It was little more than an excellent chop house of the older American order. Its walls were hung thick with signed pictures of actors and actresses, together with playbills of various periods. And because of the general excellence of the food, to say nothing of the geniality of its present manager, it had become the hangout of passing actors, politicians, local businessmen, and, after them, the generality of followers who are always drawn by that which presents something a little different to that which with they are familiar. And, uh, you know, same as it ever was, right? How many restaurants have you been in that are just like that? 
although generally not excellent, but chop houses nonetheless with pictures of fancy people on the walls and, you know, other people come to gawk at the pictures and next thing you know, you've got a real scene. Well, that's what it's like at Frizzell's. And these boys, having heard at one time and another from cab and taxi drivers that this was one of the best places in town, fixed upon it for their monthly dinners. Single plates of anything cost from 60 cents to a dollar. Coffee and tea were served in pots only. You could get anything you wanted to drink. To the left of the main room as you went in was a darker and low-ceilinged room with a fireplace to which only men resorted and sat and smoked and read papers after dinner. And it was for this room that these youths reserved their greatest admiration. Eating here, they somehow felt older, wiser, more important. Real men of the world, and Ratterer and Hegland, to whom by now Clyde had become very much attached, as well as most of the others, were satisfied that there was not another place in all Kansas City that was really as good. And who's going to know? Bellhops, that's who's going to know. They hear all the guests, you know, chit-chattering about this place and that, and, and uh, Frizzell's. Man, that's the place. That's where the locals go. That's, that's the most excellent chop house. Oh, no. Oh, no. I just had an emergency. Oh, God. And there's really nothing to remedy it. I let my digestive sit in the tea for too long, and it collapsed and fell right in. Oh, man. That's half a digestive lost. God damn it. What a misery. What a misery. If we were closer to break time, I would take a break. But now, I just have to get through it by eating the rest, the other half of the digestive. Oh, man. Now i got to take a sip. Oh, man. What a misery. What a tragedy. How am I supposed to enjoy Frizzell's when I've got a digestive slowly dissolving at the bottom of my cup of tea? Awful. And so this day, having their drawn their pay at noon and being off at six for the night, they gathered outside the hotel at the corner nearest the drugstore at which Clyde had originally applied for work, and were off in a happy, noisy frame of mind. Hegland, Ratterer, Paul Scheel, Davis Higby, another youth, Arthur Kinsella, and Clyde. I like that he just introduces another youth, Davis Higby, we've never met before. We have no frame of reference reference for Davis Higby, but he's like, yeah, let's throw another dude in there, Davis Higby. I mean, unless he's central to the story, I don't know why he included Davis Higby at all. I mean, I'm happy for Davis. He probably doesn't get out that much. I mean, we've never heard of him until now, but now here he is off to Frizzell's for a chop. Oh boy. Maybe even a pot of coffee. Chop in a pot. Did you hear the trick the guy from St. Louis pulled on the main office yesterday? Heglin inquired of the crowd generally as they started walking. Wires last Saturday from St. Louis for a parlor, bedroom, and back for himself and wife. In order, flowers put in the room. Jimmy, the key clerk, was just telling me. Then he comes on here, registers himself and his girl, see, his man and wife. And gee, a peach of a looking girl, too. Yeah, a peach of a looking girl, too. I saw her. Listen, you fellas. Can't you? Then on Wednesday, after he's been here three days and they're beginning to wonder about him a little, meals sent to the room and all that. He comes down, says that his wife's got to go back to St. Louis and that he won't need no suite, just one room, and that they can transfer his trunk and her bags to the new room until train time for her. But the trunk ain't his at all, see, but hers. And she ain't going, don't know nothing about it, but he is. Then he beats it, sees, and leaves her in the trunk in the room. And without a bean, see, now they're holding her and her trunk. And she's crying and wiring friends and there's hell to pay all around. Can you beat that? And the flowers, too. Roses. And six different meals in the room and drinks for him, too. Wow. 
Now we're hearing about the underside. You know, we 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 understand that some things, you know, happen at this hotel. It's not all fancy people with good manners and upstanding ethics. Sometimes things get a little nervy and a little crazy. People do some things that maybe they're not that proud of. And here you've got a a skip lot coming in and renting a whole suite for a few days and then taking off without his gal. Just a con artist, another gas bag, another one of these fraudsters, confidence men coming in and out of town. Just like Hester, also known as Esther's James Franco boyfriend. Well, let's see if we don't meet him at Frizzell's. <sighs> sure, I know the one you mean, exclaimed Paul Scheel. I took up some drinks myself. I felt there was something phony about that guy. He was too smooth and loud talking. Man only give me a dime. He looked like a bluff to me. Well, they fell from up in front, all right. It was Hegland talking. Well, we know that it's Hegland talking just by how he talks. And now they're trying to gouge it out of her. Can you beat it? She didn't look to me to be more than 18 or 20. If she's that old, put in Arthur Kinsella, who up to now had said nothing. Did you see either of them, Clyde? Inquired Ratterer, who was inclined to favor and foster Clyde and include him in everything. No, replied Clyde. I must have missed those two. I don't remember seeing either of them. Well, you miss seeing a bird when you miss that one. Tall, long, black cutaway coat, wide, black derby pulled low over his eyes, pearl gray spats, too. I thought he was an English duke or something at first, the way he walked, and with a cane, too. All they got to do is pull that English stuff and talk loud and order everybody about, and they get by with it every time. That's right, commented Davis Higby. Well, now we know why he's here, so he can say that's right. Without that... We'd have nobody to say that's right. So thank you, Davis Higby. But he says more. He says, that's good stuff, that English line. I wouldn't mind pulling some of it myself sometime. Oh, Davis Higby, why do you got to be so crass? Because I think that's what he's being here. I think he's being crass. It's good stuff, that English line. I wouldn't mind pulling some of it myself. Grow up, Davis Higby. You know what? I'm almost sorry we invited you. Sure, we need you to say that's right, but... Beyond that, I wish you'd kept your mouth shut. They had now turned two corners, crossed two different streets, and in group formation were making their way through the main door of Frizzell's, which gave in on the reflection of lights upon china and silverware and faces, and the buzz and clatter of a dinner crowd. Clyde was enormously impressed. Never before, apart from the Green Davidson, had he been in such a place, and with such wise, experienced youths. They made their way to a group of tables which faced a leather wall seat. The head waiter, recognizing Ratterer and Hegland and Kinsella as old patrons, had two tables put together and butter and bread and glasses brought. About these they arranged themselves, Clyde with Ratterer and Higby occupying the wall seat, Hegland, Kinsella, and Scheel sitting opposite. So six of them, can you picture it? Six of them at two tables pushed together right there at Frizzell's in the low ceiling room, the dark room with the paneling, the smoke hanging in the air, the oil paintings covering the walls with the playbills and the pictures of the actors and actresses. What a scene it must be there. What a scene at Frizzell's. The smell of grease in the air, you know, lamb chops and pork chops and heavy sides of beef hanging from hooks in the ceiling. Men with cigars and the betting pages in their breast pockets. Wow. What action there is at Frizzell's. 
on this evening. What manner of trouble could you get into in a place like that where you can order anything to drink? Even a soda pop if the mood strikes you. Now, me for a good old Manhattan to begin with, exclaimed Heglin avidly, looking about on the crowd in the room and feeling that now, indeed, he was a person. Of a reddish tan hue, his eyes keen and blue, his reddish-brown hair brushed straight up from his forehead, he seemed not unlike a large and overzealous rooster. And similarly, Arthur Kinsella, once he was in here, seemed to perk up and take heart of his present glory. In a sort of ostentatious way, he drew back his coat sleeves, seized a bill of fare, and scanning the drink list on the back, exclaimed, Well, a dry martini is good enough for a start. Well, I'm going to begin with a scotch and soda, observed Paul Scheel, solemnly examining at the same time the meat orders. None of your cocktails for me tonight, insisted Ratterer genially, but with a note of reserve in his voice. I said I wasn't going to drink much tonight, and I'm not. I think a glass of Rhine wine and seltzer will be about my speed. For the love of Mike, will you listen to that now, exclaimed Hedlund de deprecatingly. He's going to begin on Rhine wine, and him that likes Manhattans always. What's getting into all, you all of a sudden, Tommy? I thought you said you wanted a good time tonight. So I do, replied Radford. But can't I have a good time without lapping up everything in the place? I want to stay sober tonight. No more call-downs for me in the morning if I know what I'm about. I came pretty near not showing up last time. That's true, too, exclaimed Arthur Kinsella. I don't want to drink so much I don't know where I'm at, but I'm not going to begin worrying about it now. How about Higby? Heglin now called to the round-eyed youth. Yeah, what's Davis Higley going to drink? Probably something British. Knowing what an Anglophile he is, he'll probably get himself a, a pot of tea, just like I'm having, with a couple of digestives. Please, Davis Higby, please let it be so. I'm having a Manhattan, too. God damn it! He replied. And then, looking up at the waiter who was beside him, added, How's tricks, Dennis? Oh, they know the waiter. Well, they're probably going to get 10% off on the bill, too. That's what happens. You know, these hop bench kids and the waiters and, and all the service people in town at the better establishments, they all get to know each other and uh, treat each other pretty fair, I might say. Pretty fair indeed. As long as, it, as long as they're not screwing each other, just screwing the man, who cares? Well, how's he doing? Fine, fine. Oh, I can't complain, replied the waiter. They're breaking all right for me now these days. How's everything over at the hotel? Fine, fine, replied Higby, cheerfully studying the bill of fare. And you, Griffiths, what are you going to have, called Heglin. Now, that's what we were waiting for, right? Waiting to see what Clyde's going to drink. For his master of ceremonies, delegated by the others to look after the others and pay the bill and tip the waiter, he was now fulfilling the role. Well, before we find out what Clyde's going to have to drink, I'm going to guess it's going to be something uh, alcoholic in nature. You know, Clyde, sowing his oats, like I said, feeling himself, going to try some new things. But we'll find out in a minute when we return here on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back on Obscure. Everybody enjoying their drinks. The Hop Boys. Me, enjoying my tea and a little piece of digestive biscuit. Delicious. And uh, we're about to find out what Clyde Griffiths is going to drink. What are you going to have, Clyde? Who, me? Oh, me, exclaimed Clyde. That is what he says. Who, me? Oh, me, exclaimed Clyde. Not a little distracted by this, oh, disturbed by this inquiry. For up to now, this very hour, in fact, he had never touched anything stronger than coffee or ice cream soda. He had not been a little taken back by the brisk and sophisticated way in which these youths ordered cocktails and whiskey. Surely he could not go so far as that, and yet, so well had he known long before this from the conversation of these youths that on such occasions as this they did drink he did not see how he could very well hold back. What would they think of him if he did not drink something? Forever since he had been among them, he had been trying to appear as much of a man of the world as they were, and yet back of him, as he could plainly feel, lay all of the years in which he had been drilled in the horrors of drink and evil companionship. And even though in his heart this long, while he had secretly rebelled against nearly all the texts and maxims to which his parents were always alluding, deeply resenting really as worthless and pointless the ragamuffin crew of wasters and failures whom they were always seeking to save, still, now he was inclined to think and hesitate. Should he or should he not drink? You know, we may scoff a little bit at young, naive Clyde Griffiths, but, you know, these are very real feelings. I've had these feelings myself when I was his age. Do I drink? Do I not drink? How far to go with the gal in the backseat of the Ford Fiesta? You know, all of these thoughts tumbling around in the head when you're not so sure how quickly you want to grow up or not. Well, Clyde Griffiths has been inculcated with uh, the temperance movement since he was, you know, old enough to understand words, and here he is. Now out with a gang of ragamuffins and ruffians, ordering drinks off the back of the menu, you know, with such a plum. I'll have the Manhattan scotch and soda for me. No, I'll just take a Rhine wine and some seltzer. And here he is, feeling a little bit the fool, no doubt, wondering what even he should order if he is going to order. None of it distinctive to him. He's never tasted any of it. He doesn't know what any of it means. To this day, I don't drink very much. 
although more in Europe than I ever have in my life, I will say that. Aperol spritzes several times a week. Beers down at the local in England. So I get it, Clyde. I get it. For the fraction of an instant only, while all these things in him now spoke, he hesitated, then added, Why, I, uh, I think I'll take Rhine wine and seltzer too. It was the easiest and safest thing to say as he saw it. Already the rather temperate and even innocuous character of Rhine wine and seltzer had been emphasized by Hegland and all the others, and yet Ratterer was taking it, a thing which made his choice less conspicuous and, as he felt, less ridiculous. Will you listen to this now? exclaimed Hegland dramatically. He says he'll have Rhine wine and seltzer too. I see where this party breaks up at half past eight. All right, unless some of the rest of us do something. And Davis Higby, who was far more trenchant and roistering than his pleasant exterior gave any indication of, turned to Radler and said, What you want to start this Rhine wine and seltzer stuff for so soon, Tom? Don't you want us to have any fun at all tonight? Boy, the peer pressure these kids are applying. You know, they're just sticking their elbows into the backs of... Clyde and Ratterer? Well, I told you why, said Ratterer. Besides, the last time I went down to that joint, I had 40 bucks when I went in and not a cent when I came out. I want to know what's going on this time. That joint, thought Clyde on hearing it. Then after his supper, when they had all drunk and eaten enough, they were going down to one of those places called a joint. A bad house, really. There was no doubt about it. He knew what the word meant. There would be women there. Bad women. Evil women, and he would be expected. Could he? Would he? Oh man! You think that you think the decision about the drink is tough? Now he's going to go to the bad place with the bad people, and maybe do the bad thing. Ah, oh, geez, I'm pretty tore up about it. I'm not going to lie. I hope he doesn't, Clyde. I hope you stick to your guns, and I hope you don't meet a nice gal first. You know, get to know her. For the first time in his life now, he found himself confronted by a choice as to his desire for the more accurate knowledge of the one great fascinating mystery that had for so long confronted and fascinated and baffled and yet frightened him a little. For despite all his many thoughts in regard to all this and women in general, he had never been in contact with any one of them in any way. And now, now... All of a sudden, he felt faint thrills of hot and cold racing up and down his back and all over him. His hands and face grew hot and then became moist. Then his cheeks and forehead flamed. He could feel them. He sounds like he's got COVID. Strange, swift, enticing, and yet disturbing thoughts raced in and out of his consciousness. His hair tingled and he saw pictures, Bacchanalian scenes which swiftly and yet in vain he sought to put out of his mind. They would keep coming back, and he wanted them to come back, yet he did not. And through it all, he was now a little afraid. Pshaw! Had he no courage at all? These other fellows were not disturbed by the prospects of what was before them. They were very gay. They were already beginning to laugh and kid one another in regard to certain funny things that had happened the last time they were all out together. But what would his mother think if she knew? His mother. He dared not think of his mother or his father either at this time and put them both resolutely 
out of his mind. Yeah, he's in for it, isn't he? I mean, this is a real struggle of consciousness. Consciousness? Conscientiousness? Consciousness. His conscience. Conscience. Yeah. Got a lot of words that sound the same. And when you're thinking about it digestive, it's hard to pick the right one. You know, Dreiser's doing a good job. Because, I, you know, I this isn't a period of my life that I have thought about very much since it happened. But, I mean, he's he's capturing that, um, that emotional angst, that teenage sexual emotional angst very well. That, that feeling of like, hey... I'd really like to put my dick in something and then also feeling like, oh, geez, that's the last thing I want to do. Man, I would never do that. That just sounds, that just sounds scary and complicated and, and, uh, and I'm never going to do that. But then, you know, it's the only thing you want to do. Just kiss somebody and touch their boobies or their butt parts or, you know, whatever it is. And, and maybe if you're a lady friend and you like, uh, you like and you like the gentleman, you know, touching the Wii and all of that and feeling like, oh man, like I know I'm doing something kind of dangerous here, but gee, it feels good. Gee, I'm enjoying it. Been a long time since, you know, I had those kinds of feelings. But, you know, as he's writing about them, it sounds very familiar. I remember feeling baffled by sexuality. Not knowing, you know, aside from the sort of shadow sense of it, what you did why it was particularly good, but, you know, turns out to be pretty good. Oh, say, Kinsella called Higby. You remember that little redhead in that Pacific Street joint that wanted you to run away to Chicago with her? Do I, replied the amused Kinsella, taking up the martini that was just then served him. She even wanted me to quit the hotel game and let her start me in a business of some kind. I wouldn't need to work at all if I stuck by her, she told me. Oh, no, you wouldn't need to work at all except one way, called the Ratterer. Oh, I wonder what that means. You wouldn't need to work at all except one way, called the Ratterer. Sexually? Is that what that means? Because, you know, you and I, more, um, more, uh, more uh, uh, esteemed readers, we know that it wasn't going to work out. So, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what that means. It just, maybe it's just one of those things that people say. The, wa- the waiter put down Clyde's glass of Rhine wine and seltzer beside him, and interested and intense and troubled and fascinated by all that he heard. He picked it up, tasted it, and finding it mild and rather pleasing, drank it all down at once. And yet so wrought up were his thoughts that he scarcely realized then that he had drunk it. Good for you, observed Kinsella, in a most cordial tone. You must like that stuff. Oh, it's not so bad, said Clyde. And Hegland, seeing how swiftly it had gone, and feeling that Clyde, new to this world in green, need to be cheered and strengthened, called to the waiter, Here, Jerry, one more of these and make it a big one, he whispered behind his hand. He's trying to get Clyde drunk. Sure he is. And so the dinner proceeded, and it was nearly eleven, before they had exhausted the various matters of interest to them, stories of past affairs, past jobs, past feats, of daring. And by then Clyde had had considerable time to meditate on all of these youths, and he was inclined to think that he was not nearly as green as they thought, or if so, at least shrewder than most of them, of a better mentality, really. For who were they, and what were their ambitions? Hegland, as he could see, was vain, and noisy, and foolish, a person who could be taken in and conciliated by a little flattery, 
and Higby and Kinsella. Interesting and attractive boys both were still vain of things he could not be proud of. Higby of knowing a little something about automobiles. He had an uncle in the business. Kinsella of gambling, rolling dice even. And as for Ratterer and Shield, he could see and had noticed for some time that they were content with the bellhop business, just continuing in that and nothing more, a thing which he could not believe, even now, would interest him forever. So, geez, you get a couple of Rhine wines in Clyde, and suddenly his eye grows jaundiced. A few minutes ago, he was worshipping these kids. Now he's passing judgments on them left and right. Well, but maybe that's good for Clyde. Maybe he needs to understand the failings, the failings of his new friends. He needs to see them a little bit more clearly, even if it takes alcohol to raise the veil. At the same time, being confronted by this problem of how soon they would be wanting to go to a place into which he had never ventured before, and to be doing things which he had never let himself think he would do in just this way, he was just a little disturbed. Had he not better excuse himself after they got outside, or perhaps after starting along with them in whatever direction they chose to go, quietly slip away at some corner and return to his own home. For had he not already heard that the most dreadful of diseases were occasionally contracted in just such places, and that men died miserable deaths later because of low vices begun in this fashion, he could hear his mother lecturing concerning all this, yet with scarcely any direct knowledge of any kind, and yet... As an argument per contra, here were all of these boys in no wise disturbed by what was in their minds or moods to do. On the contrary, they were very gay over it all and amused, nothing more. Sure, I mean, I have no experience in these matters. Not, I mean, matters of uh, uh, the commercial variety. I think you understand what I'm alluding to. No manners, no, no experience in this at all, but... I can understand why, you know, some young kids, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 years old, who knows how old they are, you know, getting all in a lather about going down to the red light district and picking yourself out a hooer. Probably very exciting for them. They don't think too much about it. You know, this is just the ways of the world. This is how it is in Kansas City, where everything's up to date. They got everything there, you know, buildings 12 stories tall in hers. And, uh, you know, Clyde has every right to be anxious about it, and, uh, you know, if I know Clyde, and I think I do, he's gonna, he's gonna go with those boys to that house of ill repute, and I don't know what's gonna happen there, but probably nothing good. He might even run into Hester, also known as Esther. I guess we'll see, because we know, I mean, I've just been waiting for her to show up. In fact, Ratterer, who was really very fond of Clyde by now, more because of the way he looked and inquired and listened than because of anything Clyde did or said, kept nudging him with his elbow now and then, asking laughingly, how about it, Clyde? Going to be initiated tonight? And then smiling broadly, or finding Clyde quite still and thinking at times, they won't do more than bite you, Clyde. And Heglin, taking his cue from Ratterer, and occasionally desisting from his own self-glorying diatribes, would add, you won't ever be the same, Clyde, they never are, but we'll all be with you in case of trouble. And Clyde, nervous and irritated, will retort, I'll cut it out, you two. Quit kidding. What's the use of trying to make out that you know so much more than I do? And Ratterer would signal Hegland with his eyes to let up and would occasionally whisper to Clyde, That's all right, old man. Don't get sore. You know we're just fooling. That's all. 
and Clyde, very much drawn to Ratterer, would relent and wish that he were not so foolish as to show what he actually was thinking about. At last, however, by eleven o'clock, they had their fill of conversation and food and drink and were ready to depart, Heglin leading the way. And instead of the vulgar and secretive mission producing a kind of solemnity and mental or moral self-examination and self-flagellation, they laughed and talked as though there was nothing but a delicious form of amusement before them. Indeed, much to Clyde's disgust and amazement, they now began to reminisce concerning other ventures into this world, of one particular which seemed to amuse them all greatly. Oh no, is this going to be that Tucker and Max story? Oh, I hope not. No, there's that terrible Tucker and Max story that involves poo. And uh, I never for a second thought it was true, but oh, it's a poo story. And oh, man, I don't, like a, I don't like a poo story and I don't want you to think about a poo story. So I'm not even going to talk about poo anymore, but this one is just rough. You know, it involves uh, a, a fella in a closet videotaping somebody, uh, and then and then somebody else poos on him, and then he throws up, and then the other dude throws up, and there's poo and throw up. Mm, 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 mm. Uh, which seemed to amuse them all greatly, and which seemed to concern some joint, as they called it, which they had once visited, a place called Bettina's. They had been led there originally by a certain wild youth by the name of Pinky Jones of the staff of another local hotel. And this boy, and one other by the name of Birmingham, together with Hegland, who had become wildly intoxicated, had there indulged in wild pranks, which all but led to their arrest, pranks which to Clyde as he listened to them seemed scarcely possible to boys of this caliber and cleanly appearance, pranks so crude and disgusting as to sicken him a little. Well, it does sound like the Tucker Max story. Oh, I hope not. Oh, hold on. The pitcher of water to go on the second floor doused on me as I went out, called Hegland, laughing heartily. And the big fat guy in the second floor that came to the door to see, remember? Laughed Kinsella. He thought there was a fire or a riot, I bet. And you and that little fat girl, Piggy. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Remember, Ratterer? Squealed Sheel, laughing and choking as he tried to tell of it. And Ratterer's legs all bent under his load. Yoo-hoo! yelled Hegland. And away the two of them finally slid down to steps. That was all your fault, Hegland, called Higby from Kinsella's side. If you hadn't tried that switch and stuff, we never would have got put out. I tell you, I was drunk, protested Ratterer. It was the red eye they sold in there. And that long, thin guy from Texas with the big mustache. Will you ever forget him and the way he laughed? Added Kinsella. He wouldn't help nobody against us, remember? It's a wonder we weren't all thrown in the street or locked up. Oh, gee, what a night. <laughs> oh, gee, what a night. Sliding downstairs and Texans and, man, almost getting arrested or thrown out in the street. I remember times like that. I was I was like Clyde Griffiths. I was the kid who always snuck out, you know? You reach the corner, you go the other way while nobody's looking. That was me. I was never there for all, any of the high antics and all the all the nonsense. I was never, I was never there because I didn't drink, you know? Even as they talked, they had reached a certain house in a dark and rather wide street, the curbs of which for a block or more on either side were sprinkled with cabs and cars. And at the corner... Only a little distance away were some young men standing and talking, and over the way, more men, and not a half a block further on, they passed two policemen, idling and conversing. 
and although there was no light visible in any window nor over any transom, still, curiously, there was a sense of vivid, radiant life. One could feel it in this dark street. Taxis spun and honked, and two old-time closed carriages still in use rolled here and there, their curtains drawn, and doors slammed or opened and closed. And now and then, a segment of bright inward light pierced the outward gloom and then disappeared again. Overhead on this night were many stars. Finally, without any comment from anyone, Hegland, accompanied by Higby and Scheel, marched up the steps of this house and rang the bell. Almost instantly, the door was opened by a black girl in a red dress. Good evening. Walk right in, won't you? was the affable greeting. And the six, having pushed past her and through the curtains of heavy velvet, which separated this small area from the main chambers, Clyde found himself in a bright and rather gaudy general parlor or reception home, the walls of which were ornamented with gilt-framed pictures of nude or semi-nude girls and some very high-peer mirrors. And the floor was covered by a bright red thick carpet over which were strewn many gilt chairs. At the back, before some very bright red hangings, was a gilded upright piano. But of guests or inmates, there seemed to be none other than the black girl. I mean, sounds to me like a whorehouse. I'm not trying to cast aspersions on this place, but the way it's described to me, it sounds like a gal, a galdern whorehouse. And I don't know how I feel about that. Just be seated, won't you? Make yourselves at home. I'll call the madam. And running upstairs to the left, she began calling, Oh, Marie, Sadie, Caroline, they is some young gentlemen in the parlor. And at that moment, from a door in the rear, there emerged a tall, slim, and rather pale-faced woman of about 38 or 40, very erect, very executive, very intelligent and graceful-looking, diaphanously and yet modestly garbed, who said, with a rather wan and yet encouraging smile, Oh, hello, Oscar, it's you, is it? And you too, Paul, hello. Hello, Davis, just make yourselves at home anywhere, all of you. Fanny will be in a minute. She'll bring you something to drink. I've just hired a new pianist from St. Joe, a Negro. Wait till you hear him. He's awfully clever. She returned to the rear and called, Oh, Sam! As she did so, nine girls of various ages and looks, but none apparently over twenty-four or five, came trooping down the stairs at one side in the rear, and garbed as Clyde had never seen any women dressed anywhere. And they were all laughing and talking as they came, evidently very well pleased with themselves, and in no wise ashamed of their appearance, which in some instances was quite extraordinary, as Clyde saw their costumes ranging from the gayest and flimsiest of bourgeois negligees to the somewhat more sober, if no less revealing, dancing and ballroom gowns. And they were of such varied types and sizes and complexions, slim and stout and medium, tall or short, and dark or light or betwixt, and whatever their ages, all seemed young, and they smiled so warmly and enthusiastically Oh, hello, sweetheart. How are you? Don't you want to dance with me? Or wouldn't you like something to drink? End of chapter. Well, Clyde is in for a time. If I know Clyde Griffiths, and I think I do at this point, he is...
you know, he's in it now. He's in the real world. That world which to this point he has only dreamt of and fantasized about and wondered, wondered what, what could happen among all these people. Well, now he knows. Now he knows. Not quite, but he will almost certainly know in the next hour or so. So we'll wrap it up there. My digestives are just about gone. My tea has turned cold and Clyde Griffiths about to lose it in the best little whorehouse in KC. Very excited for him. Uh, but you know, he's of a sensitive nature, I suspect, and at least now he is in his early days. And maybe he's not quite ready for what he's going to find in between the sheets on the second floor or in the parlor of that particular home. But I guess we'll find out on another lascivious episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedgerin. If you listen and like this show, please help us out with a rating and a review. We want to be obscure, but not that obscure. It's an easy way to support the show. Thanks.